Hello and welcome to The Shore, a meeting place for people in film. I'm Dominie Anderson. Each episode, I sit down with women working across film and television to discuss their careers, the industry, and what they want for the next generation of women in film. Today, I'm joined by Tiffany Xiong. Tiffany is a multi-award winning filmmaker and director, with her debut documentary feature The Apology winning over 15 awards internationally, including a Peabody, the DuPont Columbia Award, and the Alan King Memorial Award. Tiffany also won the Peabody Future of Media Award and a Canadian Screen Award in 2018 for Best Original Digital Production for The Space We Hold. She is one of Doc NYC's 40 Under 40 and a driven and passionate storyteller. Let's dive in. Apologies in advance for rambling. No, I love a good ramble. We get to some really good stuff that way. Oh my God, I could ramble. Okay, so why film and TV for you? Um, my, my journey, like if we want to go all the way back, it would be, it started off with photography mm-hmm. in high school. I was obsessed with uh, the dark room. I, I was like obsessed. Maybe it was all the fumes I was sniffing. <laughs> Um, processing, but like, it was like working with like 35 millimeter, like it was just working with film itself and being able to, to produce images in that way in such a tangible way. I, I was so obsessed with it. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually think that that like photography actually saved my, saved me in high school. Otherwise I would have just been a complete delinquent. I think it gave me, um, a place to focus my energy, but also allow me to express myself and tell stories within just like the things that I was observing. And when it came time to applying for school, I, um, I think I, in like a very strategic way, I was like, well, I, I feel like I spent like a, over two years learning and focusing in photography in high school. I don't know how much more I could learn in uh, post-secondary, but I know that there's more that I want to explore and it made sense to learn the film um, mm-hmm. and to go to film school. Okay. And so I ended up going to formerly known as Ryerson mm-hmm. um, and I applied for their, their program, for their film program. And I got in, which was great. Amazing. Um, when, and I, I recently, you know, asked a few uh, film students from that program, like just over the course of this decade, if anything has changed in terms of like the diversity of kids that go there. Uh, they've always made sure that there was gender parity in bringing in, mm-hmm. made, made sure it was like 50% women, mm-hmm. 50% men. Um, but there were just not a lot of diverse people applying because let's just be mm. perfectly honest, like for a majority of immigrant parents, they're, for my generation, they were not necessarily the most excited that you were going to go to film school. <laughs> well, yeah, like the like so uncertain, right? Yeah. Of a career path. Mm-hmm. Let's be perfectly honest. Yeah, yeah. Um so in my in my class, uh I think I was one of six. One of six people of color out of a group of 64. Yeah, that's yeah. not great. <laughs> it's not great. So then if you think about like who are telling the stories when you, we talk about the gays when we're talking, you know, like it, there's just not a lot going through and even if you go through that four-year program um not everyone stays Mm -hmm. or even wants to continue yeah um so really when I think about like who's telling the stories and opportunities and such like in terms of even professional training back then um I can see why 
I can see very clearly why it's it, like the, there's such a, a big gap, right? Um, and so in my four years at Ryerson, it was the challenge of kind of um, finding, not necessarily finding my voice, but almost kind of feeling like I had to stand up for everyone. Mm-hmm. Like it felt like anyone who is going to stereotype other races in their scripts I had to be that person to police it mm-hmm. or I had to like and then I became known as the angry Asian lesbian at oh my, my, in my program it's okay but because I was also super cool because I was throwing these crazy parties at the same time but like people just knew <laughs> that I like like if if someone felt like there was a bit of a cringe in somebody's pitch they would look at me to see what I would do or what I would say because mm-hmm. they for me it like just and this is often the space you like feel like you're like responsible to like, yeah. cause if I don't, then I'm going to feel like shit. And I will have to like drag myself throughout the whole day thinking about how, um, I didn't do enough or like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm part of the problem by letting that go. Mm-hmm. And therefore, you know, this type of misogyny or racism will continue showing up on our screens right of course yeah but that was like four fucking years you know Um, yeah it's a lot of i mean it's tiring it's for four years that's a while you're just trying to learn well you're just trying to learn exactly so that ryerson for me was um was just like a a little glimpse a little tiny snapshot of what if you are to get into the industry, it'd be a, just a little snapshot of what it was all going to be about, right? Mm-hmm. People ask me this all the time, like, is it worth going into, like, professional training, like, going to four years of film school? Um, I don't, I just feel like we have so much, one, if you technically needed to learn something, it's all available online. <laughs> like, in the technical <laughs> aspect of it. Yeah. If you needed to build community and networking then I think that there is there is some value if you came straight from high school. Sure, there's value if you're not very disciplined to like go into that world where everyone's starting from scratch. Mm-hmm. But if you are, I don't think that it's now so necessary to to go into any that type of training. Like no one has ever asked, where did you go to film? Like no one asked that, right? Like no one asked your background or anything like that, um, unless you want to teach somewhere. But I feel like people have had the most success in one, the actual experience, right? Mm-hmm. The actual working experience on yeah. the film sets um, or interning or whatever or PAing um, and also being able to to actually be in surrounded by other people in the same industry or in the in- interest. Like I think that film festivals and Toronto has some of the best film festivals where you can literally be around like-minded people and do the networking, do the talking. And, and if you have the personality to navigate that world Mm -hmm. without structure, then absolutely don't, you don't need film school. Yeah. And the thing that they don't teach you is the business aspect is the fact that like after graduating school, you're really off on your own like no one ever really prepared you to like what it means to survive what it means to incorporate your own business what it means to be a sole proprietor what it means to even navigate on like the hustle Mm -hmm. um any of that stuff yeah totally if i if thinking back on what i would have done differently 
I would have a hundred percent have gone to business school. Mm. I would have gone a business degree and I would have done like night school film, like a night school masters in like whatever film or something like that, just because it would have at least aligned me with like-minded people, you know, to like, you know, jam with, Yeah. you know, but, um, business for sure. Yeah. Business. I would have done business. Yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying to, I'm trying to hone my business skills. <laughs> yeah. We are our own business, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you always want to be a director? You know, as a child. <laughs> or rather once you, by the time you go to film school more, I guess. Um, but... I think, yeah. Like straight up, like when I went, when I went into film school, the first thing, you know, they ask you is like, how many here are wanting to direct? And like everyone puts their fucking hands up, right? Yeah. Like everyone goes into film school wanting to direct. Some maybe are like more interested in being uh, cinematographers mm-hmm. and a few trickle as the producer. But like, I would say 64 kids, 70, 80% want to be directors. Okay. Then second year you start seeing it like starts to windle a little bit. So now like maybe 70%, third year, 60%. Okay. By fourth year, there really is like a few that stay. And, and I wouldn't say like, yeah, they're more focused on directing and mm-hmm. some are focused more on the producing, the writing aspect. It really, you become a little bit more focused in that area. Um, and again, it was so interesting because for me, as one of the very few women that stayed in like, I am only directing. <laughs> this is the Taurus stubbornness. Like, I'm only directing. Um, I saw a lot of my my peers, the other women in my program, um, stopped directing and they went into more the writing or the producing or editing mm-hmm. um, and other aspects, right? And they would start working on the boys' films. Mm-hmm. And the way that I, like, when I look back on it, I think it's not that people, like, separated them or said you can't direct anymore. I think it just got harder to hear your voice when you have a clique of boys Mm -hmm. that were, like, talking. And so you crewed up with the loud guys or you crewed up with them or you know, they were so sure or confident of their pro and then so you become their producer or you became their whatever, like you worked on their yeah, projects, right? Yes, I understand that for sure. And it's just the loudest and person who shouts it first. Shouts it which first is but to rally. Yeah. Like so I think by second year what I know is even though first year everyone got a chance to direct, right? Mm-hmm. Second year, I feel like a lot of people, um, you wanted people to work on your movies. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you needed to have somewhat of a presence to convince people to work on your projects. Mm -hmm. And so by third year, like if you didn't have, if you couldn't have rallied enough people on second year, third year is even more difficult because again, you're trying to crew up. Yeah. Uh, But I think what happened was I think a lot of the women that all wanted to be directors, um, it was just not feeling that vibe of getting people to rally and, and there needed to be more that energy. Like it's just a lot of space was taken up for the boys. Okay. Uh, let's be perfectly yeah, honest. Yeah. It doesn't and, sound like there was a lot of like structural support. No, no. <laughs> like and evenly distributed. Not evenly no. distributed. And, and, and so I noticed that when I think about where did, where did my friends, where did my other female filmmakers, like where they stopped and where they went into different roles and then for me, because I, again, 
felt like I was so stubborn. I was like, Taurus, I'm stubborn. I'm not going to give up. I'm, gonna, I'm so loud. <laughs> so loud. And, and frankly, I, I, um, I stuck with directing. And then by fourth year, I was the only last remaining female director to mm. have to be um, in the directing our thesis film. Mm-hmm. And once I graduated, I had um, a short film called Binding Borders. Uh, and it won, uh, won a bunch of prizes at school. Um, and then I, I like sent it off to the ether to, to do a festival circuit. And it played also on CBC. And then it won a prize on CBC. And one of the producers there was like, this was a great short um, what are you going to do next? And I'm like, you know, I'd really like to, I'd really like to direct a piece in China, um, something to do related to the Beijing Olympics, because my sister is, is going to be at the Beijing, in the Beijing Olympics as um, a sports anchor. And she knows nothing about sports, but <laughs> Yeah, it's really about the journey of transformation, not just for a country that's opening up their doors for the first time to the world, but like uh, a transformation for culture, people, and also my sister. Um, and he was like, I was like, sure, I love that idea. <laughs> if you have access to her and you know, blah, 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 and you're planning on going there, why don't we uh, talk about doing a mini series? And so my yeah. first my first project coming out of um, film school was getting this opportunity to do a mini, this is back when there was no web series, but a mini web series on the Beijing Olympics. Uh, and it was called A New Face for Beijing. And yeah, I was there, for, I was there in 2008 for like nine months for like, before the Olympics started, during the Olympics, and the aftermath of the Olympics. And I was interviewing athletes, migrant workers, volunteers that like went above and beyond. And it was really documenting my sister's journey throughout each episode. Um, so that was my first gig. That's great. You see, that's what, that's what I mean about not things being easy, but sometimes things moving with ease. When yes. you're like, you know... When you're on the right path, let's say, it doesn't necessarily, yeah, it doesn't mean it's easy at all. But, but like, I wanted to be in fiction, right? Just like I wanted to be in, I, I think everyone. Oh, really? Yeah, I was like, oh, I'm, because my, my thesis film, Binding Borders, was a scripted, scripted 18-minute short film. And it was like, representing like four different countries. I had like the largest cast ever. It was silly ambitious. Um, but I, I love, and I wrote and I loved writing the script. It was so much fun and all of it. And, and to, to have, to have like been able to successfully make, you know, the scripted film, I had it in my head that right away after school, I will be, that's what I'll be doing. Mm-hmm. I will be writing or I'll be directing uh, scripted work. Okay? Yeah. And the very first thing that was offered to me after after like I was showing the film around um was this opportunity to do this documentary Mm -hmm. I never thought in my wildest life that I would be in doc I never thought I would start off in doc yeah Um, yeah. I just knew 
and in this funny way, every documentary project that I've ever done or wanted to do, it wasn't that like I crave documentary. It was more like there are all there will always be certain stories that need to be told in a particular medium. Mm-hmm. Um, for the Beijing Olympics, documentary. When I started shooting "Sing Me a Lullaby," um, I started shooting that when I was twenty. And I was in film school still, and that was to find my mom's birth parents again. That had to be a document, like that had to be captured live, doc style mm-hmm. to be able to capture what was happening. Even though for me in my head, I was like, "This is something I might turn into a scripted uh, piece of work." But um, yeah, documentary naturally became. Listen, let's be perfectly honest. Documentary is at that time very accessible you mm-hmm. know a lot of people i think a lot of people of uh, a lot of women and maybe people of color like go into documentaries some people are like they could they don't need the resources or support of all of this machine mm-hmm. to get started first mm-hmm. so it becomes the first access okay and often I, i've noticed this now and i've talked to a few people about this i there, there seems to be a first access point that makes it accessible with because of the amount of resources it takes. Mm-hmm. Um, and doc seems to always be that path. And then from there, they may or may not jump over to, you know, fiction or episodic or whatnot, right? And how I was putting, like, I guess, food in my mouth, how I was able to sustain myself, um, I, like everyone, everyone after coming out of film school, I think everyone in their 20s like starts up their own production company. We all start up our own production. Everyone starts up with their <laughs> own their own company, right? Um, I did the same. It's actually still uh, a legal company incorporated and I had an office. I bought I got an, a rented an office space in this building with other, you know, like um, other artists but also an organization called schools without borders and i was hired to to facilitate like filmmaking workshops for for like young students in the gta um at one of our fundraisers uh this woman is sitting next to my mother and then she's like oh we're looking for some we're looking for a filmmaker to come with us to china to film our teachers learning about World War II and the atrocities there. And again, it was like this like synergy is like, oh, my daughter, she did something with the Beijing Olympics. Right now she's doing a lot of work in, in Kenya, Nairobi, but she basically, she, she can travel and she could film. That's basically it. Yeah, yeah. At that time, again, I was, this is like probably two years out of school. Um, and, and so that was another gig that led me to filming The Apology, uh, my first feature-length documentary. And yeah, you have a lot of naysayers thinking that, you know, how can, <laughs> what makes you think you could do it? Um, and I don't know, I, I'm stubborn, and but I'm also kind of like, I'm asking these questions and I want, and I'm, I want to make something that I want to see that I haven't seen. Um, I knew nothing about military sexual slavery. I knew mm-hmm. nothing about the fact that over 200,000 young girls were taken in this like, sexualized system, systematically raped by Japanese soldiers. I had no idea. And my parents didn't really talk about it. So it was like this 
there's a lot of this anger that came out of me when I first discovered this. And again, I always thought I was going to go into fiction, mm -hmm. but this was a story that needed to be told. Yeah. Because time was running out and these were grandmothers. For me, the perspective that I was interested in was not so much about the atrocities, not focusing on the rape, but actually focusing on the aftermath, focusing on the six decades that these women never told their stories or told it to a select of few people but never wanted to come out based on the fear of being ostracized. I wanted to talk about and shed light on what does shame look like on an 80-year-old woman. I want to talk about like who perpetuates the silence that women still today have such a hard time coming out. And what makes it the hardest is to come out to the people closest to you. One of the grandmothers that I followed in the Philippines for four or five years, when I first met her, her she told me her wish was just to be able to one day tell her kids. And the mm. journey of being with her and to slowly by like our fifth year, her telling me like, fuck it, I want to I want to tell them they need to know. And to see an 80-year-old woman go through the stages, mm -hmm. to come through that, it really bridges this gap, this age gap uh, that a younger person is also going through. And for me, as someone who's experienced sexual violence, um, I do believe that learning about their story, learning about the spaces that they've held for their loved ones, we need to understand how strength looks like mm -hmm. and how sacrifice looks like and and why these stories, you know, these decades of silence of not being able to talk about and not wanting to tell anybody um, was so hard for them, but also what happens afterwards. So I, I think about the apology, I think about that as like truly like my master class of of filmmaking and understanding the power of storytelling and once again it was like certain stories are meant to be told um, as documentaries and so many of the women that I've captured and filmed over the over the years they're no longer with us so it becomes this this capsule their mm -hmm. legacy you know lives on yeah through through, through this piece so um, yeah. yeah do you think that Gender discrimination, do you think it's still prevalent? Absolutely. I think the disservice of where things are at right now has been around other women or women of color or people of color feeling that they're only there because they're being tokenized, that they didn't work for that position, mm -hmm. um, that they didn't earn it, and that everyone looks at them or whispers behind their back, well, it's because they're a woman that they got that seat. Mm -hmm. uh, well, because they're a person of color, they needed to fill that role. And tokenizing and filling in slots does not actually garner creating a sustainable um, industry where people uh, from marginalized backgrounds, people of color, women, like can actually feel like it is their talent and is their hard work. It is the it is them. Their 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 skills is what got them there. And mm -hmm. I think that when we're talking about like this, the ways that I second guess myself in everything after being doing this for the last almost two decades, 
Oh, Jesus Christ, yeah. <laughs> I'm turning 40 next year. <laughs> Fucking hell, yeah. Um, I just don't, I just don't know um, when it will ever end, like the second guessing or the feeling of like that, um, am I here because I am a woman or a person of color or I'm queer, you know? Um, and then this imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. because I do think I, I make good work. I do think I'm a good storyteller. Yeah. But when we now are at this this industry now that's like props up this and makes these mandates, how do we do this in a way where like it's, it's like still <laughs> growing, you know? like Yeah, no, and I think that, um, sorry, I mean, yes, I agree. I Sometimes I forget that because Australians always say, yeah, no. And they're always <laughs> like, that, that's us agreeing. <laughs> That's how we agree, though. Like, it's, like, <laughs> yeah. it's like, yeah, I know, right? Like, it's just... Um. <laughs> Got it. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? One is... And I don't even know who gave me this advice. Um, no, I think the advice the advice that I got was... was from a collective amount of different people that I got to work with on the apology... And it was two big pieces. It was like one, um, the strength of the director is how they create the space to utilize the skill sets of other people in the best way possible and how you hone in that. And I think that that made me understand really the role of a director, you know, in mm-hmm. a way where it was not just a conductor, but also like an architect for space, you know, mm-hmm. and to be able to create the best possible working environment which then will show for the film that you make um that is your responsibility it's not to know it all Mm -hmm. and not to do it all because I was someone who's obsessed with physically doing every job possible because I was like felt like I couldn't trust anybody but it truly was uh honing in on that and that responsibility and I think that was the best advice I got when I felt like a little bit chaotic and felt like I was doing everything. It's like, you know, actually utilize the people around you. Um, that's a good director. Mm-hmm. It's not to do everyone's job. <laughs> um, and then the second best piece of advice, and I don't know if this was advice from somebody or if it was, again, lived experience, but it was, um, it was sometimes and most of the time, like, especially in documentary, these stories are bigger than you. Mm. And in that way, it's understanding that like your ego, putting aside your ego and your like, your this like my voice, mine, like oh mine, 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 like that, 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 that energy, like understand that sometimes the stories that you are, you're chosen to share, understand that it's sometimes bigger than you and your ego. And that, to know that being chosen is to be of service for the story and putting that as the priority and making those decisions um, for the story, for the people that have given you that. Like, I, I think that that is so important for people who think that making a documentary at all is easy or anything. It, if anything, it's like it truly is um, managing so much of of everyone's expectation and and to know at the end of the day that you are a guest 
if you have the privilege to shoot someone else's story and invite it into their community, know that you are a guest and how are you as a guest into somebody's home? What was the worst advice? I just read it. Yeah. What's the worst advice? Worst advice. I think everyone got this. Fix it in post. (laughs) (laughs) I think that is... Everyone has been told that by some fucker on some, like, whatever crew or whatever. Like, don't worry, you could fix it in post. Worst. Yeah, the ad department version of that is, can't you just Photoshop it? Oh, my Lord. (laughs) If you could change one thing about the industry, what would it be? The thing that I would want to change in this industry is... um, is succumbing to only like five major studios like that. There's only these giants Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. the market and that we all become slaves to in the, in the, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. And if there was a way to make all of these people, I'm talking about the Paramounts, the Disney's, the Netflix, the Amazon's, the Hulu's, the HBO's, the, the giants, Mm -hmm. right? more socially responsible yeah to the industry to the people who create the content to make to almost be like if you continue it's almost like we tax them a big motherfucking tax yeah <laughs> and it goes back into the pockets of the of the people who who are on the sets who yeah. and 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 the the training and like the shows and like I do believe, and not just like the Paramounts and the Disneys and the HBOs and the Netflix and the Amazons, but also the broadcasters mm-hmm. and the people who, again, are like paying pennies for shows. Yeah. I just think there needs to be more accountability and responsibility to these people who continue to make billions of fucking dollars and getting bonuses. All these people at top, I'd say, let's really put a, a you know magnifying glass and start some serious taxes on their fucking revenue because there's not enough and and if they want us if we all believe that we want change in this industry it starts from who's at the very fucking top yeah and how are they giving back and not in like the tokenizing motherfucking you know one year solution yeah 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 or hiring your one person of color and then firing them like a year later yeah but that's my one change that is the change that i believe Top of the list of what I wanted to change. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm saying, Bob Iger, come in for your job. <laughs> uh, what do you wish you'd known before you began in film and TV? I think, yeah, I, I really do think it's, it's knowing how important business, business mm-hmm. and negotiation, um, how 70% of this industry is based around around that, around the world of networking, business negotiation, leveraging, like just how you understand this is so much of that and placing yourself in those situations uh, to help maneuver your career, you know, don't just sit there and wait for it to fall in your fucking lap because it's never going to happen. And it's not the same as other, especially for like when we're talking about directing, like it is you're entering in an industry that should be called hustle, the hustle game. Mm-hmm. There should have been a whole semester on how to hustle, know to hustle. And then after that, you'd see whether or not you're cut for it or not, or at least it could be better prepared. The hustle game. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a real one. 
And, mm-hmm. and in the other aspect, like I, I think I knew this really quickly, very early on that like, and I knew this in university is just like how different it was for the boys versus the girls mm-hmm. in the way that you are taken seriously on set, questioned on set, like everything will just be that much harder. Yeah. And proving yourself. Like I naively, because almost kind of like it's university, so like everyone has to listen, you know, yeah. in some way or some form, like you can, no one's going to like, everyone, every student had to work on a project, but like, but I already got a taste of already the, the difference between a female director and a male director, just around seeing how many of the women dropped off mm-hmm. and wh- what happened and, and all of that. Um, and I, I wish I'd seen, truly understood then how that will translate in the working force, mm-hmm. you know, and knowing how how I would need to maneuver in that, in that way, just knowing that and, and preparing myself. Cause I prepared myself after like, just like seeing it a little bit later on. But I think if I'm armed with that in my back pocket, um, I would go into situations a little bit differently and I would have navigated a bit differently and I would have taken less things personal and understood that this is this is the world right now that I that I am in and it was a lot worse beforehand at least now I can at least even get the interview or get that mm-hmm. but that is that is what it is um what was it again what do you wish before you began the journey um that people are always trying to categorize you and put you in a box as mm-hmm. a director people are always going to say you could only do this type of work you're known as this type of storyteller. Mm. You can't possibly tell stories of children or fucking spaceships or whatever because you've only told stories about fucking this. So yeah. you're this type of director and you could only work in this medium in documentary. Um, I People will always try to put you in that box so that they could understand because I truly under, I truly believe that Fear of seeing outside of the box is just because the fear of not knowing, you know, and so people like to know everything. So if they put you in a box and they know everything that you're capable of, mm-hmm. which is this. So now I know you, I know what you've done. I know what you're capable of. And that's why, that's why I'm only going to put you and think of you for those things and think that you're only capable of these things. Right. If you, if you know that people are going to try to do that to you, know already right off the bat to make sure that you're versatile that you are presented like it's not about convincing people it's just like hey I know this is my body of work these are the things that I'm also excited about doing these are like just knowing how you now know that the first thing people are going to be like is put you in this situation so how do you make sure that when you're going into meetings and when you when you're even sharing your work that your my personality and my humor is very opposite to like I think people are thinking me as like a very serious body of work serious person but like mm-hmm. I actually think that the way that I come off actually gives people more of a sense of how versatile I am as a storyteller and the things I'm interested in doing and I hope that that can channel more but in the Canadian industry we're more it's like very risk adverse 
Mm-hmm. Everyone just needs to know exactly what they're going to fucking get. And therefore, people have less opportunities of getting to try different things and doing different things and, and, and different creative fields. And I think it's a fucking disservice. Yeah. We have a lot of really talented people that have been just like pigeonholed into one category and that's the only way they can make their bread and butter and so they've just stayed there for like 20 years mm-hmm. which is a goddamn shame because I think that they were very capable of exercising other things but Canada again smaller country risk mm-hmm. adverse you know can't don't want to see out the box so yeah knowing that today um yeah I implement that a lot more in the way I navigate the way I take meetings uh the, even like the fact that I am doing two fiction features, scripted fiction features. One I got hired for, the other one is my own. Like, again, it's like, no no one's going to fucking put me in a box. You know what I mean? Like that, like, it's like, I'm going to carve it out. You know, if you're, don't wait for someone to give you that, do it yourself. It's like, you hope that you could have someone that can see outside of the, that box, right? Yeah. But not everyone is like that. No. To give you yeah, that, yeah. like, I could understand your capacity. So, um, I, I like people, I would love for people to know that because I wish I knew that, you know. Amazing. Okay. Amazing. Okay, last question. This I am really fascinated by because I, I think, again, we've touched on it a little bit, but it's something I'm constantly thinking of is what we're, what we're building, mm-hmm. what we're building in terms of the industry and our community and, and how we're going to do that and, and what we're trying to get to. Mm-hmm. And so that is where the last question comes in, which is what do you hope or wish for the next generation of women in film? Um, I wish for, I wish for women to not feel like they need to be lesser of, dim their light lower and silence themselves in spaces so that they feel like they can be uh, welcomed more appreciated. Mm-hmm. I truly feel that way because I think it happens so often. And, and if you do it too often, it starts changing your character and creates the imposter syndrome of not feeling like you're good enough, but maybe you've started off knowing how capable you are but in the spaces that you take in especially in the film and television industry um it can be very daunting especially when you're new to it um and therefore you just want to be liked you want to be welcomed and sometimes it sometimes these spaces don't champion for you to shine bright speak Mm -hmm. up voice your opinions you know, or exercise risk in a way where actually can be really innovative, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I just, I hope, I hope in the next generation that they don't have to face that. And then I, I hope for the next generation of women in this film industry is understanding that and truly embracing that we're lifting each other up, that we're building the stepping stones for yet another group, another generation, and that it only serves us better mm-hmm. by helping the next generation. Mm-hmm. I see that in the ways that I was mentored by all these incredible women who were pioneers for me that I got to work with. 
if they didn't give me that space, I wouldn't have gotten to where I am. And, and I see that we're all, and then by me being there, it has made in many ways, it's, it's fulfilled their legacy mm -hmm. of doing what they did, worked on these projects with me, created these spaces for me. And then the same thing when I think about like every meeting I've ever taken or anyone that I've ever wanted to support, like, again, it's the same thing. It's like, if I can serve this group or share or help or work on or fight um, so that it can just be a little bit easier, that is absolutely imperative. Otherwise, it's like, then all the work that my mentors and those pioneers that led us, it was all for nothing if we don't continue it. Mm -hmm. If we stop that, it is like, all for what? You know, yeah. all for what? I, I, I get annoyed when people think, well, I'm just one person. What am I supposed yeah. to do? I'm just, just staying in my lane and just doing my fucking job. If everyone had that same fucking mentality to even think that there would even be any space carved for us, if we ever just thought, stay in your lane is due for you, you know, yeah. that individualism of just, just work with your head down and just keep there. Um, it doesn't work. Also, it, it's, that's, that's the whole myth of meritocracy. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, none of that, none of that works I, <laughs> in real life. No. Yeah. No. It's not how the world works, unfortunately, or our industry for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean that, that's, that's the, that's the, that's the hope. Uh, uh, I hope that the next generation of women don't have to feel like that they have to suffer to get to where they need to go to or to feel like they have to quote unquote. I say this with a lot of empathy for everyone who has had to suffer, but like pay their dues. And that means to like suffer. Yeah. I don't, I hate talking about that and thinking that these 20 year olds need to like grind it the way I've grinded. it. Cause I'm just like, but why did that happen? Yeah, I think, and you know, there's a difference between, and I always think of this, there's a difference between like paying your dues, which is like suffering and honing your craft. Yes. Which is what some people yes. actually mean when they say pay your dues. What they're actually trying to get at is you should have, you should be uh, able to hone your craft. You should have spaces and opportunities to yes. work on smaller things and then yes. get bigger. And yes. like, that all is correct. Yes. But the, uh, but the idea of paying your dues, you're right. That comes with like suffering. The in suffering. It, you have to, that it has to, that, that has to, that's a negative thing. The paying your dues, because honing your craft is not negative. And no. it doesn't mean that you're having any negative experiences no. at all. You might make mistakes and stuff, mm -hmm. but that isn't inherently negative. No. That is like, so, I'm so glad you, you, you said that because I, that has to be interpreted like so clearly to people. It's like, well, you suffered, so I have to suffer. No, it's like honing, exactly what you just said, honing your craft. And, and that definitely comes with time that you invest in. But that does not mean I do not champion people believing that they need to work below minimum wage and starve and work on set for 20 hours, not sleeping, sleep deprived. Like, because to me, in many ways, it's like we're trying to create a healthy, sustainable industry where people want to come back and, and reinvest in this industry. And if we're all just like killing people very like, you know, at such mm -hmm. an early age, like we're just like perpetuating this like get down on your knees type of like begs suffer like all of this work mentality where I'm just like I I don't I don't support it obviously because I like 
appreciate union and, and, and that type of stuff. But like, I, one last thing I will say on this topic of like honing your craft, I think the best thing we as creatives, as artists, uh, do working in this industry is, <laughs> and I remember seeing this on like some series, but like someone, some artist illustrator treated his craft as being like a professional athlete in this weird way. But if we all understood or saw ourselves as professional athletes, and so sometimes you're not playing and it's just like, it's like the off season. So you're just in training. Mm -hmm. If we understood that at some times we're just going to be on the off season and training and what does training look like? Well, training could look like many things. It could mean like, doing a short writing, uh, doing another arts project that could, again, hone your craft. But no professional athlete isn't training or exercising during their off season because when they go back onto set, when they go back into the game season, mm -hmm. their muscles are already warmed up. I think we can constantly look at ourselves as professional athletes that need to train in the off season. Yeah. So that whatever job you take, don't look, don't look down on their frow, your brow. Look at it as like, hey, if this is your off season and you're a professional athlete, you're going to fucking pick up that ball and fucking dribble it in your local fucking gym or whatever fucking gym you have or fucking take a jog if you're a fucking track athlete. Whatever it is, it's like if we, if we treated our body like the temple that athletes <laughs> do in the same way as our exercising the arts, whatever way it could keep you fresh, keep you awake, keep you like, just like even just loving what you do, whatever it is. Um, one, I think it will actually just make us happier people mm -hmm. versus being like, you will only work when you get that call. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like only when I get the gig or when I only like when I have the project, it's like, there's so many different ways that we can exercise that creative muscle that can make sure that we're always in training. Yeah. And if we're not, if we're not doing that and if we're not investing in our own mental health, creative self, um, we might not last very long, you know, mm -hmm. we'll only have like two seasons <laughs> to play, right? <laughs> That's my end off. That yeah. is my big takeaway is hoping that we can all treat ourselves, uh, in the same vein as what athletes do, you know? Yeah. It's very unique. I love that. There you go. I think that's great. All right, I think we can wrap it up there. I think we, I think we covered so much. We did. It's gonna be great. If you enjoyed this episode, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com/theshore. You can also follow us on Instagram at theshorepod. That's at the.shore.pod.